The Bible says, where two or three are gathered together, someone will start a fight. I think that's like Hezekiah 66 or something like that. I don't know. But how do you do with handling conflict? That's my question. Now, I have to confess to you that sometimes I don't, I don't do too well with it. Um, and that presents a problem for me as a pastor because in a church this size, inevitably, someone's going to be upset about something. I mean, there are so many different issues. There are so many different flashpoints, so many different expectations, so many different unmet expectations. It's, it's just impossible to please everyone. And I remember when I was younger and I was, uh, you know, fretting about all this, someone, uh, lots of people would say, well, Charlie, you know, you can't please everybody. And I know that, but everybody doesn't. That's the problem. But, uh, you know, some people want to move faster. Some people want to go slower. Some people want things to change. Other people want things to stay the same. Some people like loud music. And some people like it so quiet you can't even hear it. And so I, I've had to accept the fact that I, I pretty much stay in trouble with somebody all the time. And, uh, and many days I go home uh, wiped out. I go home exhausted uh, because my day has been spent putting out fires. And I'm sure you know what I mean. I mean it's, not, it's not any different in, in, in your world because you face conflicts at home and conflicts at work and conflicts with people you love and conflicts with people that you want to avoid. And, uh, and, and you, know, you know how all, all that can be so draining and exhausting. Now, the more I study John's gospel, the more I'm taken with Jesus because uh, one thing that impresses me about him is that he doesn't, he doesn't seem to be drained by constant conflict. I mean, he, he stays on mission. He stays on task. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that he was frustrated at times. I mean, uh, we, we read about this in the Gospels. There was one time that the disciples couldn't do something he thought they ought to be able to do. And he says, how long must I put up with you? And I have that, vote, that verse uh, memorized. And um, I quote it under my breath uh, frequently. But uh, take your Bible, uh, whether it's paper or digital, find your way to John chapter 7. We're going to cover the entire chapter because the entire chapter is about controversy and conflict. So I'm just going to walk through the text and I'm going to make con uh, comments along the way. So we're going to start with the context for the conflict in this chapter. Now, beginning in chapter 5, we see things heating up between Jesus and the religious authorities. The last time he was in Jerusalem, he healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. And the Jews, and by the way, whenever John uses the term the Jews, he, he doesn't mean national Israel. He's not talking about the Jews as a nation. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders, like scribes and Pharisees and the priests and chief priests and Levites anybody of religious importance, but when he healed this man who had been sick for 38 years, he healed him on the Sabbath, and that made the Jews absolutely livid. Jesus had broken one of their Sabbath traditions, and to make matters worse, he claimed to have the authority to do that because he says he was sent by God himself, and he went on to claim that he was equal with God. And if you don't believe that, John chapter 5, verse 18 says this, uh, for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also making himself equal with God. Now, the important thing to note in that verse is here, for our context, is uh, that they were seeking to kill him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him out of the way. Now, when we come to chapter 6, we find Jesus is in Galilee. 
about 70 miles from Jerusalem, and, and, he, and he, he feeds over 15,000 people there uh, with uh, a, a boy's snack lunch, five barley biscuits and two pickled sardines. And the crowd is so taken by him, they want to take him and make him king by force. But uh, Jesus will not be elected to the office of Messiah. He is not going to be a meal ticket. He is not a political reformer. So get this. In order to thin the crowd of would-be disciples who wanted to use Jesus for their own ends, Jesus starts using language that sounds really gruesome and offensive. He doesn't just say, I'm the bread of life. He who, he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He says, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And verse 66 says that because of this, many of Jesus' disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. <clears throat> so the Galileans aren't looking to kill him. They're just disgusted with him. But the point is, since chapter 5, the conflict and the controversy are swirling and heating up. And so now we come to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We just talked about that. Now, the Jews' feast of booths, or the uh, feast of tabernacles, was at hand. So, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, the Israelites were enslaved to a cruel taskmaster, Pharaoh. And when God delivered them from Pharaoh's hands, they wandered around in the wilderness, traveling uh, toward the promised land, and, and, and they slept in tents. They called them booths. We call them tents. But this is camping. This is Hebrew camping. Now, how many of you like to camp? Okay, we'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> I like the idea of camping, but when I'm laying out on cold, hard ground, I'm laying there thinking, why did I ever think this would be fun? And, uh, and you're going to see here in this story that these people are, are very grumpy, and I think it's because they're camping. And I mean, they, they were not happy campers. That's where this came from right here. Now, since we're just running this rabbit, I'm going to give you a couple reasons why I don't camp. First of all, my whole goal, the reason I get up every day and go to work is so that I don't have to sleep outside. All right, that's pretty much every decision I make is to keep me from that destination. Plus, I've never seen a movie where a guy in a mask with a chainsaw shows up at a bed and breakfast. I mean, they're always after the people in tents. And then to me, I think to a bear, a human in a sleeping bag looks like a big taco. And so I was reading um, a couple of theologians and all this, uh, Dave Barry and Jim Gaffigan. And, um, and noteworthy theologian Dave Barry said, camping is nature's way of promoting the hotel business. And Jim Gaffigan says, my wife says that camping is a tradition in my family. I say it was a tradition in everyone's family till we invented the house. And so, so at the Feast of Tabernacles, these people are camping, all right? Verse three. So his brothers 
say to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples there may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For, verse five, now here's the key to understanding what's going on here. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, implication, because you're a part of it, but it hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast yet, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So here we hear that Jesus is in the midst of conflict at home, conflict with his own family, conflict with his brothers. Now, contrary to the Catholic doctrine that Mary remained a perpetual virgin all the days of her life, after the virgin birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had other children. So Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters, kind of a blended family situation. And think about that. Think about what it would be like to grow up in a home where Jesus was your brother. I mean, every time something bad happened, like uh, a lamp gets broke, or someone forgot to tie the donkey up and it got away, or, you know, Joseph's hammer got misplaced, just try blaming that on Jesus. And you'd hear Mary say, oh, I know Jesus didn't do it. I mean, I would think that over time that could build up some resentment. And so his brothers here are kind of mocking him. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a popular feast that lasted about eight days, and anyone who wanted to get their message out to as many people as possible wouldn't want to miss being in Jerusalem at this time. So his brothers are saying, hey, look, if you want people to know who you are, uh, you, you need to leave these small backwater towns in Galilee where you've been doing all these miracles, and you need to go show yourself to the world. Show yourself in Jerusalem where everybody who's anybody can see you, and there's no better time than the present to do it. But but, but Jesus wasn't looking to show himself to the largest number of people possible in order to attract followers. No, we just saw him thinning the crowd in chapter six. He's not interested in showing off to attract uh, more people. No, Jesus knew that the world, uh, the world system and the religious powers that be, they, they wouldn't embrace him any more than his brothers had. So he tells them, his brothers, any time is right for you to go to the feast or to do anything you want for that matter, but for me, I am on God's timetable. My time has not yet come, and he says that twice in this passage. Now, some people wonder why Jesus said he wasn't going to the feast, and then he turns around and ends up going. Well, what about that? Well, verse 10, um, understood in this context text is actually telling us that Jesus is saying that he would not go to the feast to make a public showing the way that his brothers were trying to manipulate him into doing. He would choose his own time and he would go in his own way. That is in the middle of the week and publicly but not privately. Now by the way, you realize you, realize you can't push God into doing what you want, right? I mean, you realize that. I mean, some people think, seem to think that by doing certain things and saying certain things and praying certain ways that they can twist God's arm to do what they want when they want it. But look at it right here. It, 
It, it doesn't work. Jesus is on a mission to do the will of his Father, and he operates by divine standard time, not my standard time, and nothing, no amount of persuasion or coercion will cause him to, de to deviate from that plan. You can't force his hand. You can't force him to act before he's ready. He will always do what he knows best in his time and in his way. So Jesus faces conflict at home here. His brothers don't believe him, and they're mocking him, and they're trying to manipulate him into making a public spectacle of himself. Verse 11. Meanwhile, at the feast, there was much muttering about him among the people. Now, that's a key verse. There was much muttering about him among the people. And by the way, this is the first evidence of a Baptist church in the New Testament. So I hit the Catholics, got to hit the Baptists now, all right? So, now, some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So before he even gets to the feast, there's conflict. The conflict is brewing. Some think he's a good man. Others think he's a cult leader leading people astray. Nobody is really talking out loud about him for fear of the leaders who want to kill him. And they, and they were treating anybody with contempt who was even at the least bit open to Jesus. Now, I want you to step into this crowd with me. Step into the crowd. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Somehow, or sometimes the best way to read your Bible is actually put yourself in the scene. So I want you to step into the crowd with me and try to feel the intensity and the heat of this conflict. All right, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So Jesus' time uh, was to go up privately in the middle of a feast and notice he doesn't go and work some great miracle. He goes up and he simply teaches. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So the Jews were criticizing Jesus saying he was uneducated and therefore unqualified to teach the scriptures. Basically, Jesus was an uncredentialed rabbi. He had not been to rabbi school. He had no seminary or Bible college training and it was a common practice in that day that only the disciple of an accredited rabbi was entitled to expound scripture. And when he did, he never made a statement on his own authority. He would say, uh, there is a teaching that, or rabbi so-and-so says, and, and so the teacher, the rabbi, always cited quotations from various authorities to validate his teaching. But here's Jesus, an uncredentialed rabbi, the son of a Galilean carpenter, a man with no training whatsoever, and he dares to explain their scriptures to them. He dares to explain Moses to them, so they want to know the source of his teaching. Verse 16, Jesus said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of himself who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He's talking about himself. Now notice how he turns the table on those who are judging him. Jesus is about to judge the judges, and it's gonna get hot. You still in the crowd? All right, feel the heat of this. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not a single one of you keeps the law. 
oof, man, why do you see? And, and, and so they're thinking, we gotta kill this guy. That's why Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? I mean, seriously, uh, like you are? I mean, Jesus and the people in the crowd know very well that the religious leaders are intent on killing him. Look down in verse 25. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is this, isn't this the man whom they're seeking to kill? So these religious leaders are lying through the teeth. Of course they want to kill him. Back to verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work. Now he's referring back to chapter five, the last time he was in Jerusalem, when he healed the, the man who had been sick for 38 years and broke Sabbath tradition. He says, he says, I did one work and you marvel at that. In other words, you think it's strange that anyone would break Sabbath tradition. Verse 22, but Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, this is a brilliant defense. I mean, Jesus says, you want to kill me for healing a man on the Sabbath, but you're inconsistent. You allow a male child to be circumcised on the Sabbath, if it falls on the eighth day, because it, it, it perfects the boy. It makes him whole. A small change to one part of a baby boy makes him whole in your eyes. And Jesus says, you do this on the Sabbath, and you feel like you're justified in doing it. So how can you reason that I did wrong when I healed a man who had been sick for 38 years, making his entire body healthy on the Sabbath? He's saying, your judgment of me is inconsistent. If you judged rightly, you would see that what I've done is like what you yourselves do. It's, it, I mean, what do you say to that? I mean, it's brilliant. And someone in the crowd hears Jesus stinging defense, and they say, and you know, there's this muttering going on in the crowd. They say, can you believe what Jesus is saying? I mean, the religious authorities aren't saying anything about it. Do you think they really believe that he's the Messiah? And evidently, one of the religious leaders standing next to the person who was saying that overheard it, and they said, hey, no way. We know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus comes right back at him. You know me, and you think you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Oh. And he's told them, you don't keep the law that you pr profess to keep. And now he's saying, I know God and you don't. I mean, nothing could be more insulting and infuriating to these religious leaders than for Jesus to say, I know God, but you don't. Verse 29, and he isn't done. Verse 29, I know him because I come from him. And he sent me. And so, and so they were seeking to arrest him. They're trying to figure out a way to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many people believed in him, and they were saying, well, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And the Pharisees in the crowd, they heard the people muttering about these things, and the chief priests and the Pharisees decided enough is enough, and so they send the temple guards, the officers, to arrest him. And so Jesus says in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Now remember this, what he says right here, because I'm gonna come back to it. 
You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. And the Jews said to each other, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? I mean, does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? The dispersion referred to the Jewish people that were scattered all around the Roman Empire. They were Jews living among the Gentiles rather than living in the land of Israel. And it's amazing to me that this taunt here actually becomes a prophecy because after Jesus was crucified and risen and ascended back into heaven, the gospel did spread to the entire Gentile world. But of course, they didn't understand that. Verse 36, they're scratching their heads. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? And this swirling controversy, all of this conflict, continues all the way to the end of the chapter. Look down in verse 40. And when when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, no, he's more than that. This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? I mean, where the Messiah comes from is a big deal to them. Verse 42, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? I mean, they they knew Jesus lived in Galilee, but they didn't know that he was born in, in Bethlehem. And so some of them wanted to, oh, and then verse 43, this is a key verse. So there was division among the people because of him. And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Well, what about those temple guards that they sent to arrest Jesus? Verse 45, the officers returned to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, where is he? Why didn't you bring him? And the officers said, no one has ever spoken like this man. (laughs) Is that not amazing? They didn't arrest him because they were awestruck by his teaching. So, verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived now? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Now, you see right there the attitude of the self-righteous religious leaders towards common people. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, chapter 3, who was one of them, said, does it? Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning about what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee? I mean, search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. So you're feeling the tension. I mean, the heat, the anger, the contempt, the backbiting. They're even turning on each other. And anyone who appears to take Jesus' side gets blasted, like Nicodemus here. I mean, they just pounce on him. Are you a Galilean peasant too? Look and see, look at the scriptures and see, no prophet comes from Galilee, which isn't true. Jonah came from Galilee. So they don't know their Bibles as well as they think they do. So here's Jesus surrounded by conflict. It's like here's Jesus and right around front row are all the religious leaders who are pouncing on him. And then behind them are their their supporters. And then behind them are the crowds and that crowd's are, are divided, and some say he's a good man. Others say, no, he's a deceiver. Some say he's demon-possessed, uh, and some say, we've never heard anybody speak like this before. Some say he's uh, the great prophet that Moses promised, and others say, no, he's more than a prophet. He has to be the Messiah. I mean, can, when the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than what we see here? And a whole argument breaks out over where the Messiah comes from. Some say he comes from Bethlehem. Some say no one knows where Messiah will come from. 
come from, but one thing they say is for sure, he certainly won't come from Galilee. So you hear it, you feel it. Uh, this is intense, unrelenting, almost on the edge of violence kind of conflict. His own brothers mock him and manipulate him. His enemies judge him as unfit as a teacher and a potential Messiah candidate, and they want him dead. The crowd is divided, grumbling, murmuring, arguing among themselves. They're not happy campers. Now, I'm pretty sure that none of us in this room have faced or will ever face the kind of conflict that Jesus faced right here. But Jesus lived in it over a year, knowing full well it would ultimately lead to his death. And here's the thing that blows my mind. In the midst of all this conflict, Jesus isn't wiped out or worn down. He's still focused. He's still courageous. He's still on mission. He's still resolved to carry out his father's mission according to his father's timetable. And that is just absolutely amazing to me. So I want to know what he's drinking here to have that kind of resolve and that kind of courage? Well, he tells us in verse 37. Second main point, this is the call to those in conflict. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he shouted, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now to really appreciate what Jesus is doing here, what he's saying and why he's saying it, you need to know what happened on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now Barclay in his commentary uh, writes this. Each day of the festival, this is like, all eight days, the people came with palms and their willows to the temple, and with them they formed a kind of screen or roof, and they marched around the great altar. At the, time, at the same time, the priest took a golden pitcher, which held about two pints, and he went down to the pool of Siloam and filled it with water, and it was carried back through the water gate as the people recited Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. The water was carried up to the temple and to the altar and poured out as an offering to God, and while this was being done, the Hallel, which is uh, Psalms 113 to 118, were sung by the Levite choir to the accompaniment of flutes. When they came to the words, O give thanks to the Lord, and again to the words, Save us, we pray, O Lord, and grant us success. And finally, to the closing words, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The worshipers shouted and waved their palm branches towards the altar. The whole dramatic ceremony was a vivid thanksgiving of God's gift of water and an acted-out prayer for rain with a memory of the water which sprang forth from the rock when they traveled in the wilderness. Remember, Moses struck the rock and water came forth. The last day of the ceremony was doubly impressive, for they marched seven times round the altar in memory of the sevenfold circuit around the walls of Jericho, whereby the walls fell down and the city was taken. Barclay concludes, it was against that background Maybe it was at that very moment 
when the water was being poured out on the altar and the people were shouting that Jesus shouts with a loud voice. He has to shout because something has been building up in him. Something has been burning in him and is about ready to explode. And what he's about to say, he says in front of all of these people who want him dead. And so he shouts, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Water's being poured out, it's running off the altar in the temple. If anyone is thirsty, no, come to me and drink. It's as if Jesus said, you're thanking and glorifying God for water that quenches your physical thirst. Come to me, I will quench your spiritual thirst. Jesus was using that dramatic moment to turn the people's thoughts to a deeper thirst that we have for God and for eternal things. You see the picture in your mind, it's just absolutely awesome. And this was the exact right time for Jesus to claim that he was fulfilling scripture. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, uh, will, uh, the, the, will have the water of life running out, out of him. Now, that doesn't come from just like one scripture. It comes from like a collection of scriptures that are talking about this. Like, for instance, that's the one that I just quoted from Barclay. Um, Isaiah 12, uh, two and three, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord is my strength and my strong song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then Isaiah 44, three and four, the prophet says, or God says, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they shall spring up like the grass, like willows, willows by flowing streams. So you see here, there's a connection between water and spirit. Isaiah 55, one, verse one and verse six. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Seek the Lord while he may be found. What did Jesus say? You can only seek me a little while longer and I'm going away. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. In Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. All of what Jesus is saying here in John 7, verses 37 and 38, and all of these scriptures that allude to what he's saying is they're all meant to say that every one of us has a thirst for God, and Jesus is claiming that he and he alone can quench that thirst. What's going on here? Anyone thirsty, he says, Jesus offers himself to be the satisfaction of your deepest thirst. Jesus offers himself to be the deepest satisfaction of your deepest thirst. This is his call to those in conflict, even to his enemies. This call, anyone thirsty, is open-ended. It's universal. Ever, whosoever will may come. Come to me and drink. But what does that mean, come to me and drink? It means that Jesus is the thirst quencher. Coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, is like having your thirst quenched when you're parched 
You know what that's like. You've been outside mowing the grass on a hot day or you've been running outside or whatever and you're just so thirsty and you grab that water and you start guzzling it. It starts running down your face and on your, on your chest and everything. But as soon as that water hits your stomach, immediate satisfaction, immediate satisfaction. And, and that's what faith is all about. Believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus is like a thirsty person uh, drinking. Uh, drinking is believing and believing is drinking. There's just one condition, just one condition. You don't have to earn it, and you don't have to pay for it. You just have to recognize your thirst. You have to know you need Jesus. You have to know your need, and then you begin to drink. And when you drink water, you take it into yourself, and that water refreshes you, and that water uh, revives you and renews you and restores you. It quenches your thirst, meaning it quenches your longings, but that's not all. Like, like eating bread that we talked about last week, the water becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of you. And that's what believing is like. It's not just mental assent. It's not just agreeing with, with some system of Bible facts. No, faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us. Faith is the quenching of the soul's thirst for God. Faith, belief, is trusting Jesus in such a way that your relationship with him becomes the ultimate satisfaction of your life. And by believing in Jesus and trusting him to forgive your sin and trusting him to give you a life now and forever, trusting him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, you find that Jesus is the all-satisfying end to all of our longings. He is he is the soul-satisfying water that we thirst for. You know where most of our conflicts come from? Our conflicts come because we're thirsty. And we try to quench our thirst with things that were never meant to satisfy our thirst. Conflicts arise when we try to hold on to something we fear losing or when, when, uh, when someone blocks what we're trying to achieve. Most of our conflicts come as we strive to find pleasure and satisfaction in something or someone other than Jesus. Now, James, Jesus' half-brother James, one of the ones that were mocking him and trying to manipulate him and here in this chapter, James, after the resurrect, re resurrection, he met the resurrected Christ, and he wrote a, a letter that has become a part of our New Testament, and James tells us where conflict comes from. This is from the Good News Bible. Where do all the fights and conflicts among you come from? They come from your desires for pleasure, which are constantly fighting within you. You want things, but you can't have them, so you're ready to kill. You strongly desire things, but you can't get them, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have what you want because you, ask, you don't ask God for it. And when you do ask, you don't receive it because your motives are bad. And because you ask for things to use for your own pleasure. You see what James is saying. Our conflicts are caused because our pleasures are misplaced. We look for certain things to satisfy our thirst rather than finding our, our satisfaction by coming and drinking deeply of Jesus. And you see, when Jesus is not the source of your ultimate pleasure, when he is not the source of your ultimate satisfaction, then inevitably, inevitably, you will try to satisfy your thirst and quench your thirst with things that cannot satisfy, 
with things that ultimately cause conflict. And that's why we, in this world, this broken world, we'll never get away from conflict. We live in a fallen world where, where everybody is trying to get what they want, how they want it, when they want it. And we're in a world where we're trying to get what we want, how we want it, and when we want it. And, that, and there, that means that there is going to be continual, constant conflict unless we learn what it means to come to Jesus and have those deepest longings uh, satisfied. The point is that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy. And we might find that our thir- thirst is temporarily uh, quenched by things or even by relationships, but the fact is we go up and down in what we find pleasure in, right? I mean, we, we feel bored and disappointed one day, and the next day we feel hopeful and excited. And what Jesus is saying to this crowd and what he's saying to us, that all of us that live in this fallen world of constant conflict, he says, unless we come to him and keep coming to him, we will not find life. We will not find satisfaction. We will not have our thirst quenched because our greatest delight and our satisfaction has to flow out of our personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, this is how the, uh, this is how the enslaving force of sin is broken in our lives. You see, when, when our hearts become satisfied with all that God is in Jesus, the power of sin to lure us away from God is broken. Now, of course, we have to grow in this but that's why we have the Spirit of God. The Spirit, that's what this passage is about. And so, conflict makes me thirsty. Like I long for the peaceful, calm waters of relational harmony. And I hope that maybe, just maybe, the, my thirst can be satisfied that way. But, but, but there's a thirst that's deeper than that. It's a thirst for God. It's a thirst for Jesus. It's a thirst for his spirit deep inside of me to begin to bubble up and to flow out of me. That's the real thirst quencher. And whenever God chooses to allow calm waters or rough waters in my life, it doesn't really matter. But if you're drawing, if you're not drawing from this well, then you're, you're, you, 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 you will experience dissatisfaction. The one thing that you can offer God is your thirst. Your thirst. I like how Piper puts it. He says, God is most glorified when we're most satisfied with him. He's most glorified when we're most satisfied with him. He's most glorified when we're thirsty for him. And so you have to believe, you have to know that the thirst you feel inside, the, all the longings you feel inside for things or for relations, they're really longings for God, thirst for God. And so what I need to do in the midst of conflict is I need to keep coming back to Jesus and bending down and drinking deeply of him. Now, how do you drink deeply of his spirit? Well, you offer your thirst in prayer to God. John Piper, uh, in his book, uh, Taste and See, Savoring the Supremacy of God in All of Life, here's what he writes. He says, here's how I pray for my soul. Here's the meat and potatoes of my prayer life. Number one, the first thing my soul needs is an inclination to God and his word. Without that, nothing else will happen of any value in my life. I have to want to know God and read his word and draw near to him. 
Where does that want to come from? It comes from God. So Psalm 119.36 teaches us to pray, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to gain. Number two, next, I need to have the eyes of my heart open so that when my inclination leads me to the word, I see what is really there and not just my own ideas. Who opens the eyes of my heart? God does. So Psalm 119.18 teaches us to pray, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your word. Number three, then I need for my heart to be enlightened by these wonders that I find. I need to perceive glory and beauty in them, not just interesting facts. Who enlightens the heart? God does. So Ephesians 1.18 teaches us to pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. Number four, I'm concerned that my heart is badly fragmented and parts of it might remain in the dark whilst other parts uh, are in the light. So I long for my heart to be united for God. What does that wholeness and unity come from? Where does it come from? It comes from God. So Psalm 86:11 teaches us to pray, O oh Lord, I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Number five, what I really want from all this engagement with the word of God and the work of his spirit in answer to my prayers is that my heart will be satisfied with God and not with the world. Where does that satisfaction come from? From God. So Psalm 90, 14 teaches us to pray, satisfy us in the morning with thy steadfast love that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. That's what the prayer of a thirsty person sounds like. And if you're doing the CBR journal with us, that first prayer of surrender that we write before we read the word, that's what these prayers are. These are the prayers that, uh, of, of surrender. Oh God, incline my heart to your word. Open my eyes that I might see. Enlighten my heart, unite my heart, satisfy my soul. Those are the prayers of a thirsty person, a person who knows that only Jesus can quench their thirst and satisfy their heart. Now, if all of this talk about living water sounds strange to you, like you, you know that you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you know you don't really know what that would be like to have the Spirit of God living in you, listen, you don't have to understand everything that we've talked about today. I pray that at least it has made you thirsty because Jesus says, if anyone Anyone, again, that's the most open-ended, universal invitation. It's like if Jesus sounded like a Calvinist last week, he sounds like an Arminian this week. Whosoever will may come. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And how do you drink? You do it in prayer. You come to God, and, and prayer is just talking to God. You say, God, I, I, I do feel that thirst. I am thirsty inside, and I don't understand everything that man was ranting and raving about up there, but I'm coming to you, and I'm trusting you to forgive my sin and, and to set me free from this guilt that I feel, and, and, and I'm trusting you to give me life because that's what I'm hearing, and I know I don't have that life, but I, but I want it, so please, Jesus, give me this life that you promised. It's talking to God like that, and you pray a prayer like that, and Jesus puts his spirit inside of you, and you begin a new walk and a new life with him, and you begin to realize 
that, that, that having that personal relationship with, with Jesus is a lifelong thing. And you find, and you, you begin to find in him the satisfaction that you're, that you're looking for. And again, you don't have to understand it all right away. All you have to do is be thirsty. All you have to do is want it. All you have to do is take Jesus at his word and he will give you what your heart desires most. So are you thirsty? If so, take Jesus at his word. Drink him in, believe in him. Believe he can and will do for you what he promised to do, and that is whoever believes in me, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. That's how you begin a relationship with God. Now I know in a room this size, there's a lot of you that feel worn out and uh, burned out, and you're weary, and maybe you've gotten off track. I mean, maybe you've been trying to find pleasure and satisfaction in some things or some one other than Jesus. And just talk to God about that. Just say, God, I, 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 I have gotten off track. I've tried, to, I've tried to quench my thirst with all kinds of things that just make me more and more thirsty. And so I wanna come back to you. I wanna come back to you this morning I want you to be my greatest delight. I want you to be my ultimate satisfaction. I want you to be my ultimate pleasure. And you know what? What you're doing is you're saying, God, I'm thirsty and I want you. And he'll meet you at that point of thirst. He'll meet you in your need because he's most glorified when we're most satisfied with him. And this is the cool thing. Did you know that in the very last chapter of the Bible, the same invitation is given. Revelation twenty two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Anyone thirsty, take a drink of Jesus, believe in him and he will give you eternal life. He's the thirst keeper, thirst quencher and the promise keeper. Father God, thank you so much for this word that meets us at our point of need. And I pray for anyone here this morning that maybe for the first time prayed or prayed with me and confessed their thirst and asked you to meet their thirst. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for our sins so that they could be forgiven and that you rose from the dead to prove that you could give us eternal life and quench our thirst by putting your spirit inside of us. And I pray for anyone who's made that decision, that turn, that turn to trust you today, that you would allow them to know deep inside that your spirit is living there and that they would tell one of us about it. And then, Lord, for the rest of us that get so weary by the conflict and chaos and confusion we live in every day, Holy Spirit, bring to, to our memories these words of Jesus so that every day we begin our days and then throughout the days we keep turning to Jesus knowing that only 
you, Jesus, can satisfy our thirst and deepest longings. And we ask these things for your greater fame. Amen.